2: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we revisit our conversation with the senior librarian of Denver's Blair Caldwell African American Research Library.
3: We want to document history as it unfolds because that's the best way to tell the story.
2: And with public health measures in flux, we check in on Colorado schools to see how they're navigating changes at this stage in the pandemic. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Later in the show, we'll get a look at how the senior librarian at Denver's Blair Caldwell African American Research Library collects historical items and documents for the library's archive. But first, we're going to check in on Colorado schools. As local public health officials relax mask mandates across the state, many school districts are following suit. Districts are also stopping COVID contact tracing policies. Last week, health officials said schools could soon treat the virus as a routine disease like flu or norovirus. Erica Meltzer is Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat, Colorado. She's been following the changing COVID protocols in schools and joins us now for an update on the various approaches districts are taking as we enter the third year of the pandemic. Erica, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me.
2: Erica, many school districts across the state have been dropping mask mandates. What can you tell us about this shift?
4: Well, it started in December where we saw uh, school districts in more conservative parts of the state drop their mask mandates. Uh, But in recent weeks, it's been all up and down the front range in districts with a variety of political orientations and, and levels of caution towards COVID. And there seems to be this feeling that, I don't know how else to put it, except that we're done with COVID, we can't mask forever, it's, it's time to move on. There is, um, there was a state modeling report that showed that cases would continue to go down, um, though not quite as steeply, but still go down pretty steeply sort of regardless of what the transmission control measures were. So I think that that was one of the factors. But I did talk to some pediatricians who said, you know, we don't actually think that the science is there, that there is still benefit to masking. And really, we should have waited until child vaccination rates were higher. Um, but but that's just not what school districts and local county health departments are doing.
2: Yeah. And I wanted to ask you more about that, because I know you uh, talked with or heard from an infectious disease specialist and a pediatric specialist at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical School about this. What did he have to say
4: well, he did acknowledge, uh, as he said to me, that the horse is out of the barn school districts are doing um, what they're going to do, but he just emphasized that there is still very high rates of COVID in the community um, and masking is still protective and that children can and do get sick and Right now we have about 30% of children five to 11 who are fully vaccinated. And what he said is that he would have really liked to see those numbers higher before schools drop masks. It's also interesting that a lot of um, universities and colleges are keeping their mask mandates, even though they also have a vaccine mandate. Um, And so it's just interesting sort of how the politics of that um, are playing out.
2: Yeah, very interesting. Something to keep an eye on there. Um, Well, last week, Colorado health officials said schools could soon start treating COVID as a routine disease, something more akin to the flu or norovirus. What did they mean by that?
4: What they mean by that is that they're not necessarily going to be contact tracing individual cases or asking contacts to quarantine, whether, whether they were masked or not. And just if you're sick, stay home. And they said that they would um, only implement some of these more um, intensive protocols like quarantine if there was an outbreak at the school. But they also acknowledged that if you're not doing contact tracing and not following up on individual cases, it'll be a lot harder to know if there is an outbreak. And they recommended that schools do things like participate in wastewater monitoring. And, but they also said, well, we're, we're looking for funds to help make that more feasible for you. So I don't know if we'll actually see that come to pass.
2: Oh, interesting. Well, I'm wondering how schools are reacting because you know we've heard from a lot of educators who say we want to keep kids safe, but you know, getting kids back in school is so important. How are they reacting to that that news?
4: You know, I think there's a lot of mixed feelings. I, you know, I mean, most Colorado um, schools have been in session most of the school year, but there has been this impact from quarantine that can be quite disruptive, and so I think some people are. Um, glad to see, glad to look towards a future where quarantine is not really a factor. And I think other people think that it's too soon, and they're concerned that um, by not having these protocols in place, that we're actually going to see more illness. And if people are homesick, that's also going to be disruptive to school.
2: Well, state health officials at the beginning of February uh, endorsed a test-to-stay program. Um, Before we get into whether or not it's working, could you briefly explain how the test to stay program um, was meant to work?
4: Yeah, test to stay is an alternative to quarantine. Instead of staying home for five days after an exposure, um, you would take a COVID test um, as soon as you heard about the exposure. If it was negative, you could keep going to school provided you wear a mask and um, you were supposed to test again Um, four or five days after exposure. And as long as you remain negative, you could continue to come to school.
2: Okay. And this is different from the other um, COVID testing program in schools,
4: right? The other COVID testing program was a screening program. And the idea of that is that um, a large percentage of the school population would get tested on a weekly basis. And the hope was to catch, you know, more asymptomatic cases early on and limit spread by keeping, you know, those folks would realize that they were covid positive and they would stay home sooner than if they waited for symptoms to develop. Um, and, and that program, you know, there are a number of schools and school districts participating in it, but most of them do not have super high participation. It, th- that program never really took off, I think, the way that some state health officials were hoping.
2: Okay. I know some schools were offering incentives for kids to get tested. Did, it sounds like maybe that approach did not quite work.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think it worked some in some instances, um, but when I, public health experts have said the, with screening programs, what you really want is like close to a hundred percent participation. And otherwise you're just catching so few cases that it doesn't have the intended um, public health benefit.
2: Well, with the understanding that it was probably a number of factors, namely the Omicron variant surge in cases, um, prompting state public health officials to announce the test-to-stay program.
4: Uh, Did it work as intended? I feel like the test-to-stay program probably came along a little late in the game to have much effect. The CDC endorsed test-to-stay back in December, and the CDPHE in Colorado didn't endorse test-to-stay until February 1st. And a lot of schools were facing very high numbers of um, cases during Omicron. It was almost impossible to keep on top of everything. There was the prospect of a lot of quarantine. And so I do think the intent of test to stay was to reduce quarantine, um, especially among close contacts who might've already been masked, might already be vaccinated. And to be clear, a lot of these folks would not have had to quarantine anyway, but I think the idea was to keep more kids and more staff in school buildings and so to reduce the disruption. But it wasn't announced until um, Omicron cases were already in steep decline. And then less than two weeks later, they came with this additional announcement that we're gonna shift towards, um, you know, a more routine disease approach to COVID. And if you're doing the routine disease approach, there's not actually a lot of incentive to participate in test to stay. Um, Looking at who um, has registered for test to stay, um, a number of schools that were already doing the screening program um, did sign up for test to stay. Um, And in the Metro area, we're seeing some charter schools and private schools that signed up for it. Um, Schools in Mesa County, in Montrose County in Western Colorado, and the Fort Lupton High School um, signed up for test to stay. So there's maybe about, A few dozen schools that are doing it out of about 2,000 schools in Colorado. They would have just gotten started, so it's a little hard to say how it's working. But at the same time, with this shift in policy, it's hard to see what the incentive would be for school districts that don't want to take on the logistical challenges.
2: Sure. They don't sound insignificant, in fact. You mentioned someone's response earlier that the Horses kind of out of the bar now. Uh, I'm wondering if you think it's possible schools will ever go back to stricter COVID policies again?
4: I think that's really going to depend on the course of the disease. Right now, state modelers are estimating that about 80 percent of people in Colorado have immunity either through the vaccine or through having a recent infection. And that's why they think that cases are going to continue to go down regardless of policy. I think if we saw a disease trajectory that caused a lot of disruption, that we might see a return of some protocols. And school officials have said, you know, for people who are worried about masks going away, hey, we can always bring them back if we need to. But I have to say that feels unlikely. I feel like the the political trajectory, the social trajectory, the cultural trajectory is that a lot of people whether COVID is done with us, they're done with COVID. And um, and people just want to move into this next phase.
2: Right. Well, lastly, Erica, um, have you been able to speak with any teachers or students or parents about these changes to COVID policies? Uh, and if so, what are you hearing?
4: There's just a real range of feelings. I mean, some people are, are happy to see students' faces, to... Um, to have that connection, some people find masks bothersome. There's also a lot of people who the mask helps them has helped them feel safe in public spaces and safe in school. Um, who aren't sure it's quite it's quite time, and so there's just a real mix of feelings.
2: Erica Meltzer is bureau chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. You'll find a link to her reporting on this at our website kunc.org. Thank you so much, Erica.
4: Thanks for having me.
2: You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Millions of dollars in donations have poured in for the hundreds of people who lost their homes in Colorado's Marshall Fire. But not far from the ashes, advocates are looking for money to address a crisis of chronic homelessness. As KUNC's Robin Vincent reports, this reflects our attitudes on the issue.
0: It's nearing 5 p.m. on a frigid evening in Boulder, and Elizabeth Cutler is waiting for the city's homeless shelter to open. She's sitting in the lobby with her walker.
1: With the snow, the bearings are going out on my wheels, so I try not to use my walker at night because... The wheels will squeak and I don't want to wake people up. The former
0: caseworker suffers from a debilitating spinal condition. In 2010, it got so bad she had to stop working. She receives disability benefits, but medical bills were adding up and soon became unmanageable. Then she got evicted. She lived in a van for eight years with her little dog, Daisy May. That time was a glimmer amid her struggles with homelessness. It was much better for me, you know. If I didn't like my neighbors, I could move. But it didn't last. The transmission went out,
1: and then my little dog died. And I wound up here. <laughs>
0: it's notoriously difficult to find affordable housing in Boulder. Last October, Rent Cafe listed the average one bedroom here at more than 2200 per month. The median sale price for a home, meanwhile, is nearly $1 million. Interim Shelter Director, Spencer Downing. So in a place where house prices are going up, it tends to follow pretty closely that you're going to see a rise in homelessness. And we're gonna see that especially after the fires. In December, the Marshall Fire ravaged more than a 1,000 homes in Boulder County. There's been an outpouring of financial support for the victims, a heartening display of generosity. Still, it contrasts the reactions to those experiencing chronic homelessness. Downing says that's because we're drawn to the concept of the deserving poor, those who can't be blamed for their misfortune. Whereas if there's something that makes it seem like that was somehow a person's fault that they are poor or that their bad decision-making resulted in this It's harder for us to think about, well, what are the systems that gave their decisions such a small range? Lack of affordable housing is a major problem. Throw medical bills into the equation and virtually no friends or family to lean on, and you could lose your home like Elizabeth Cutler. Downing says donations at the shelter are down in comparison to last year, and it may be due to people choosing instead to donate to fire victims. This is playing out while Boulder continues to enforce its camping ban.
4: They need to fix this. They can't keep making it a crime for people essentially to be homeless in Boulder.
0: That's attorney Annie Kurtz with the Colorado American Civil Liberties Union. She's taken up this issue with Boulder.
4: As long as there are folks in your community that can't meaningfully access the shelter
0: it
1: is a violation of the Constitution.
0: The shelter has had to turn people away due to capacity issues. And a recent investigation by the nonprofit Boulder Reporting Lab found police were issuing camping tickets when that was happening in December. Boulder Mayor Aaron Brockett defends the ban and says it's being enforced with more compassionate discretion. He says people camping along creeks and in parks isn't a viable solution.
4: There's no sanitation, there's no trash services, there's no connection to you know, mental health support.
0: Boulder has placed more than 100 people into homes. And in a win for housing advocates, the city is moving forward with plans to open a day shelter.
4: The vision is to create a center where folks can go during the day and get out of the cold. Folks that
0: are in right now are members of the reserve Bed Program back at the shelter people are lining up interim director downing expects to reach capacity of 145 tonight as the temperature drops into the 20s the former history professor compares the public's tolerance for homelessness to other past moral failures like slavery at some point it became reprehensible how are you able to know that there are people sleeping outside without anything and that you accept that that's just kind of how things are. I hope that in the future, people will be astonished by us. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Robin Vincent. KUNC is a member
2: of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find more stories at KUNC.org. In 1999, Denver's first African-American mayor, Wellington Webb, and first lady, Wilma Webb, proposed a library to preserve African-American history in Colorado. Today, the Blair-Caldwell African-American Research Library is still achieving its goal. For Black History Month last year, February of 2021, Colorado Editions Tess Novotny spoke with senior librarian Jamika Lewis about how she collects historical items and documents for the library. She began with what inspired her to be a librarian.
3: I always loved the library as a kid, and when I went to college, I met my first Black librarian. And it wasn't until I met her when I realized that I could actually pursue librarianship as a career and so she took me under her wing in college and then i got a position at my alma mater in the library from there i worked my way up i got my master's degree in library science and then i held two different librarian positions there before i came to
1: denver you mentioned that you didn't meet your first black librarian until college What kind of barriers do you see people of color experiencing to becoming librarians?
3: There is the financial barrier. You know, we do have to have the master's degree in order to be a librarian. And so that can be a barrier. Fortunately for me, I had scholarships and fellowships that paid for my degree. And so I was able to kind of overcome that barrier. And then there's just the the lack of seeing people who look like us. There's a lack of representation in the profession. And, you know, as a librarian, I try to make sure that everyone I come across knows that I'm a librarian because I know that I may be the only Black
1: librarian that they ever get to see. According to data from the Department for Professional Employees, just 5.3% of librarians were Black in 2019. At the same time, more than 83% were white. What is it like for you to navigate that?
3: There are moments where it can be tricky, especially when you work in an institution like where Caldwell, where our mission and our focus is the promotion of Black history and culture. Sometimes we can get pushback, you know, having that focus. Sometimes we can face different opposition to us maintaining that focus and maintaining that specialty. Being a Black librarian, I've had my share of microaggressions and racially motivated negative experiences, but all of that just
1: makes me want to excel. When the library was established, much of the history about African Americans in Colorado and the West was in private hands. Why was that?
3: A lot of people in the community felt like it was easier for them to keep this information to themselves versus potentially sending it to institutions that may not provide a certain level of care that you know they would like for their materials and then it's it's a lot easier to have these materials in one or two kind of concentrated places like Blair Caldwell like the Black American West Museum and other institutions it's easier for us to kind of have all these things in a couple of places versus having them scattered everywhere. There is a certain level of trust that has to be built in order to have good donor relations. And I think that with institutions like Blair and like Black American West, we've worked really hard to foster and nurture those relationships in the community. And so people trust us They trust us to take care of their history. They trust us to preserve this history, and they trust us to tell the story. You know, we are professionals just as anyone else in any other institutions are. We're trained, we're knowledgeable, we're passionate. We know what we're doing.
1: What kinds of things do people donate to the library?
3: We get everything. We get books, we get manuscripts, we get pictures, we get art, we get sculpture, I mean, we get everything, political papers, we get, I mean, you name it, we get it. We have items of clothing. Yeah, we get, we get it all. And it's so much fun to learn the stories behind every piece of paper or every photograph or every object. I mean, it's it's really an honor for us to be able to learn, you know, these stories and to be able to tell others about them.
1: What are some of your favorite items in the library?
3: It's really hard to ask a historian what is their favorite or some of their favorite things because we'd say everything, of course. I love the pictures. I love looking through our different photograph collections, our different scrapbooks. I really enjoy reading personal letters, letters from community members to kind of more well-known figures. We have a letter from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that was written to a community member who reached out to him about some help with Lincoln Hills, the Lincoln Hills Resort. Reading a letter that Dr. King wrote was just, it was mind-blowing. It was incredible. But I always love reading those personal correspondences because they really give you an insight into the mindset of that person and then into what was happening around them at the time.
1: 2020 was a really significant year for the Black Lives Matter movement. How does the library document history as it's still unfolding?
3: So we reach out to the community. We reach out to community members. We reach out to activists, and we ask, would you be willing to donate some of your your papers or some of maybe even some of your signs or some of your pictures? We want to document history as it unfolds, because that's the best way to tell the story. We try to get it as fresh as possible. We want to make sure that people understand what exactly happened and from the mouths of the organizers, from the mouths of the protesters, directly from the people who contributed to this history and to what happened. We always wanna promote accurate history and we always wanna promote telling the truth.
1: It may not be comfortable and it may not be pretty, but truth is truth. I'm talking to you during Black History Month. How are you celebrating? I am celebrating
3: in so many ways. On my own social media, I chose this month to highlight people who I know personally, who I say are living Black history right now. So I'm highlighting friends of mine who are entrepreneurs, who are librarians, who are historians, who work in different industries, who are leaders in their communities. I'm choosing to highlight them because their stories are just as important as of the well-known, the more well-known figures.
2: That was Colorado Editions Tess Novotny speaking with Jamika Lewis, a senior librarian at the Blair Caldwell African American Research Library in Denver. That conversation happened last year in February. our show for today. Next time on Colorado Edition, an exhibit featuring the early 20th century work of prolific African-American photographer John Johnson is coming to the Greeley History Museum. We'll explore Johnson's work and the impact it has today in tomorrow's show. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat and Jackie High. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.